Thanks for downloading today's UWR Alumni Voices episode. I'm your host, Josh Van Camp, and today we're speaking with Dr. Kate Leeming. Kate's an explorer, venturer, educator, real tennis professional, author, and presenter. Kate was the first person to cycle west to east coast Africa, and first person to cycle in the movie's entire coastline, the Skeleton Coast, and also the first woman to cycle the Canningstock route, is a born explorer. She absolutely loves being able to not only explore the world, but also educate those communities locally and globally throughout her channels. I talk about what it takes to prepare for such an expedition, both physically and mentally. And we also talk about her goal to cycle the South Pole, which she's been preparing for since 2013, preparing to make the first bicycle crossing of the Antarctic continent on a Christini all-wheel fat bike in late 2021. Podcast with Kate starts now. Now, Kate, you announced breaking the cycle South Pole when you started to prepare for it in 2013, you know, that you're wanting to prepare to make the first bicycle crossing of the Antarctic continent on a Christini all-wheel fat bike in late 2021. The South Pole will take approximately 45 days at temperatures plummeting to minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Why? And do you have to prepare due to COVID-19 cancelling or postponing the adventure? Uh, thanks, Josh. That's a big question. <laughs> um, so where do I start? I mean, the why is is, is a really big question because um, there are many reasons why. It's not just I want to be the first or anything like that at all. Um, so firstly, the intrinsic reasons as to why I want to travel and why I've been traveling uh, by bike is just that you're very connected with the landscape and it really helps me to understand how the world fits together. And, and I just really love this idea of bringing a line on, on a map to life, especially making a line on a map. Um, <laughs> um, so that's just sort of, you know, I started on this journey of traveling by bike, um, you know, after I left UWA, in fact, and, and I didn't know what I was going to be able to achieve or anything like that. And it's just like one experience after another is growing. I couldn't have imagined cycling across Antarctica, you know, when I left uni. Um, but actually, um, because of all these experiences, uh, uh, you know, my mind's opened up as to what's really possible. So I love this idea of exploring the boundaries of what's possible. And, and, and I, I know this is possible, <laughs> I very much do. And actually when I cycled the Canning stock route, uh, my Australian journey, Anyone that's got a thousand sand dunes crossing four deserts in WA, um, anyone who's done that since me has done it on a fat bike, and a fat bike is a bike with with wide tyres, and so that's how this idea. You know, I was looking out at the uh, actually the the salty lake disappointment, and it was forty five Celsius, and I'm thinking, oh, Antarctica sounds like a great place right now. So <laughs> a little bit of positive thinking there, but that's kind of. Um, you know, one experience after another, and I realised that cycling in sand and snow is very similar. And I've always been intrigued by um, explorers of the heroic age, as well as, as modern explorers. Um, Antarctica's got a great relationship with Australia. I've, you know, so my mind or, you know, the, the stories that have come out of there have really inspired me. So that's why I started looking just myself towards Antarctica. Um, but then... Um, now with the advent of fat bikes, I was thinking, hmm, 
maybe this is possible. Anyone, anyone else before 2013 had totally failed to get to the South Pole on a bike, let alone across the continent. Um, so what I had to do was, was, was start a new adventure, but, mm. but that, that's how that began. And I guess what I've also learned from my traveling when you ask why um, is, is, you know, right since UWA times, I've had a passion for the importance of education. And, and so that's really, um, uh, you know, with all these different experiences, again, I, I really understand having traveled to every continent on earth, how important education is uh, uh, f to educate the future generations to, you know, um, uh, to create well-informed leaders of tomorrow. And, and so that's, Antarctica will be used in education and also as a way of uh, education related to poverty. So what's going to be more difficult, riding across the Antarctic or is it simply just finding the financial support for this because what you're trying to do isn't cheap, is it? No, it's not. And I think, I think the, you know, I'd like to say that I'm, I'm that well prepared that if I get to the start line, I'm going to get to the finish line. I don't take anything for granted, but it's really, um, it, it's, it's about finding just the right partners and, and it is big bucks. Um, but, but I think that's, it's not big bucks. If you can see what we can do with it as a, as a marketing uh, exercise, let alone mm -hmm. anything else. So marketing for any, any company to do with uh, risk mitigation, uh, teaching about resilience, about what women can really do. And of course, about education in, in many ways, about teaching about leadership. There are so many synergies with so many uh, companies and it's just really finding the right way in. Um, um, and, you know, I, I've also been very careful to put a, like the most experienced team I possibly can around me. So we sort of take those other things out of it. So it's expensive because I've got, you know, it's supported and you know, I've got a great, great team. And so that, that gives me the best chance of pulling this off and, and at the same time creating great um, content for, for whomever would like to support. So you're talking about a great team. What does your team consist of? So we have to have um, a support vehicle. There's an Icelandic company called Arctic Trucks and they are the absolute experts in polar travel. And I've actually met the CEO. I've known him ever since I started this. I even met him in Iceland. In fact, he invited me to stay at his place, which is very cool. Um, so um, so a, uh, we'll have an Arctic truck with a driver and that driver will have would be very experienced uh, within Antarctica. Then I've got a very high level filmmaker, Claudio von Planter, whom you may know if you've ever watched Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman's motorbike journeys, Long Way Around, Down, and now just coming out long mm -hmm. Uh, he, he's been on three of my polar training expeditions um, because he loves story. He can see the value in it and he wants to be there to tell it. So it's actually been a challenge for him to upskill into polar uh, filmmaking, but he, he's done it and he's a great guy. So, um, so he's in charge of, of that side of it. Of take, and, and then, you know, I've been working with Eric Phillips, who's Australia's most experienced polar explorer. Um, so I'm not sure at the moment whether we'll have someone like Eric as a guide or whether we, I've got some other options of very experienced people that I can pull in, but having learned, especially from the past where I haven't always had quite the right teammates because I haven't been able to pay, you know, it, the circumstances of say a long 
10 month journey across Africa is such that it's very difficult to find the right people, for example. Mm. But here, I'm not messing around. I've got the best. Yeah. Uh, that's good. Now, but what about keeping fit and training? Because you're based in Melbourne, you're currently in lockdown. So how do you prepare for such a journey? There's one thing just keeping fit and keeping healthy. And right now, you know, I much prefer to be in WA than, than where I am. Um, but um, just before this, you know, I've got this indoor trainer here. I'm on the bike doing uh, one and a half, two hours a day, just keeping things ticking over. Wow. Uh, I'm going to be fitter coming out of COVID than going into it. Um, but it, yes, sure, I, I, could, I do a lot of Pilates. I, um, um, but it's not about, cane, you know, really caning myself all the time because I'd be, I'd be wiped out before I even started. Mm. So I need to be ready and strong and fit that way. And I think the other thing that's really important is that I've been doing a whole series of preparatory expeditions to be expedition fit physically and mentally, because it's one thing just you know, cycling on an indoor trainer. It's quite different when you're out, uh, when you've got all sorts of weather and conditions and, uh, and problems facing you every single day. And, um, and so the idea of, of just maintaining and building that resilience and just keeping my own self-confidence. And as I get older, I've got to make sure that I'm not kidding myself. So, um, you know, over the last, uh, since 2018, I've been doing a preparatory expedition on each continent. So that's either in sand, polar, or at altitude, because Antarctica is at uh, almost 3,000 metres, the plateau average. So that will seem like even higher than that in the extreme cold. So it's important to be able to think clearly in, in those conditions mm. and and that's really it so I, i've done yeah an expedition on each continent other than antarctica now let's yeah now let's talk about some of those expeditions because you've ridden through europe across russia in 93 for the trans-siberian cycle expedition uh when you became the first woman to cycle across the new russia unsupported aiding the children of chernobyl uh 25,000 kilometers through australia and 22,000 kilometers west to east coast africa from senegal to somalia so can you just walk us through maybe each of those expeditions to discuss or share exactly how they all came about sure so i guess we should start from the beginning so leaving uwa um i went to the uk playing hockey for it with the uh, hockey club and stayed over there, did a little trip uh, in Ireland, and that led to, to bigger journeys, and I did about 15,000 Ks. This is my personal exploration through Europe. <laughs> and then that's where I really discovered what I could do. And then um, sort of after my trip up to the Nordcap in Norway, I was thinking about cycling across Russia, and this was, of course, when it had just been changing from the Soviet, being the Soviet Union to the CIS to actually an independent country. And so previously you couldn't get permission to go across Siberia, um, but I managed to get that. And at the same time, I met a fellow called Robert Swan, a polar explorer, first person to have walked to both the North and South Poles. And then it was Robert who really taught me that there was much more value to what I was doing than just riding a bike. Um, and, and he gave me a lot of confidence and helped me step up. Um, so that's why, you know, I thought, well, okay, what's the value? What could I do cycling across Russia and aiding children affected by the Chernobyl disaster seemed, okay, it's not quite in Russia, but Russia was affected and it seemed appropriate. So, um, so that's how that, that came about. So that was a five month journey from St. Petersburg to Vladivostok 
And, you know, 1,500 kilometres of that, there were no roads. We actually had to follow the Trans-Siberian Railway line and push our bikes through the swamp area. Um, there were village, any little village was beside the railway line, but in, in the winter, heavy vehicles could get through. But in the summer, when we had to go through the summer, of course, um, it was just, everything went underwater, the, no bridges or anything like that. So, um, wow. so that was the, a great way to navigate where the people were as well. Uh, every 30 or 40 Ks, there was something. Um, it's also a bit safer because there were bears out there and, and, and they, didn't, they stayed away from the railway tracks. Um, so all these little things, but it was just this most amazing adventure and to see, um, experience Russia at that time when it was completely changing and, 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 you know, you know, both sides were fed a whole lot of, you know, propaganda, you know, in the cold war and growing up in that time and being fed that and then getting there and real, you know, these people were just so friendly, you know, right through, you know, and, and it wasn't, you know, that at all. And, and they're generally well-read, good people, but they were used to hard times. Things had broken down and, and it was just very life-changing expedition. So got to Vladivostok one day ahead of schedule after five months. And that was, you know, just, it was just a great adventure. Um, then I um, went back, I was based in the UK then, went back to the UK. I just, just a slight diversion, I discovered real tennis the game, original game of tennis. And that was a different adventure for 10 years um, that I spent. So after two years, I became a professional. And basically, um, I was just going to see how far I could go with that. And which, I mean, I've been to number two in the world and been in the top five. Yeah, can you, can you share to everyone the difference between real tennis and tennis that everyone kind of knows from Australian Open? Of course. So real tennis is the original racket sport. Uh, from which tennis that you know came from. And um, so me being a, like a state level squash player, hockey player, a lot of different things. So I discovered this new sport, which is it's a little bit like a mix between tennis, squash and chess is like what we like to say. So you play indoors uh, on a court that's much bigger than a tennis court. Uh, like you fit four squash courts on there, um, but you hit the ball over a net and it has walls. So the walls go up to about 20 feet high. Uh, it's an asymmetrical court. So the similarities are you use a ball, a racket, you score the same way and hitting the ball over a net, but there's a lot more um, intricacies, hence, hence uh, saying it's a bit more like chess. Um, and it's very highly skilled level. Cricketers do well at this game uh, because they're used to hitting a hard ball. It's a hard handmade ball, um, the ball that as professionals, we have to make by hand. Um, it's it's slightly smaller than a tennis ball, but but more like a baseball. Um, uh, then the rackets have to be very strong, has to be made of wood. The strings are different, so um, to get the, enough tension, we have to do it by hand. A machine can't do it tight enough. Um, no. The competitions, I mean, the Grand Slam is just the same. You have the Australian, British, French and US Opens but it's a very small sport. So we have about 12,000 people in the world that play, of which it, it's almost like a big family. So, so um, it can be played at all different levels. Uh, so imagine a bit like a golf, there's a handicapping system, a bit like in golf. And it means that men and women play each other, apart from the opens, and they, they can play off handicap. 
and that rating system works worldwide. So um, it's it's very social, but it's, it just depends what level you play at. Um, it's very infuriating sometimes because <laughs> the skill levels are so high, the ball takes a lot of spin. Sometimes it gets a bit beaten slightly out of shape, which is really annoying. <laughs> um, um, uh, you know, there are so many skills to it, but I guess it really captured my my imagination. And because I'd been at a high level at other sports, when I got to play real tennis, it was a chance. There was no expectations. I just started mm. from scratch. And and being in the UK, um, I, was, I was with a couple of Australian pros to start with, so uh, where I learned. So it was kind of... Um, you know, I discovered it by accident, but then it was and was something I hadn't planned. But then after two years, let's let's see where we can take this. Um, so that stopped my other other side for a little while, and and I have friends for life from from that. It's like I say, it's like a big family. Um, but when I came back to Australia, I came back to Melbourne because um, they have a real tennis court here, and I was sort of moved in as deputy head pro here. Um, so that's that's where I still work, although I only work part-time now. Um, I don't really, I have a knee injury that I've had to manage through absolutely everything that started when I became a pro in real tennis. So um, it's it slowed me up on the tennis court, but luckily cycling, it still still manages okay for cycling, so I can manage that and, 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 and really focus on that. So, um, so I guess... Back to the expedition. So when I came back here, I really wanted to see how Australia matched up with all the other parts of the world that I'd seen at this point. Um, and I saw it organised the Great Australian Cycle Expedition, which was 25,000 kilometres through the whole country. And previously, my experiences of my country was the southwest corner, a little bit up in the northwest. Uh, most capital cities to play sport, you know, state teams and stuff. And that's it. So I, I, I really wanted to see how that all fit together. So it started and finished in Canberra, but there were 7,000 kilometres actually off-road on remote tracks. Wow. So um, uh, it was, was truly a brilliant way to experience my country. It's the first time I created an education programme. Uh, the UN took it on as a, an official activity for the United Nations Decade of Education for Sustainable Development. It was just at the start when the average person didn't really understand the concept of sustainability. And, and while I did visit remote schools and spoke at, you know, ran classes on the schools of the air a couple of times and that kind of thing, it was also this story of just me, how do I sustain myself for, you know, nine and a half months cycling mm -hmm. through every single condition. It's all about management. And um, it was kind of like a, uh, you know, I, I was telling a story and the story was also like I, I was bringing in stories about stations and land management and what they were doing, the good things people were doing. Um, and, and sort of the cycling, as always, is the glue that sticks that story together. Um, so it was, it was incredible to, to, you know, even to, to cycle um, into, through the back gate of my home farm at that stage, like which is um, 130 k's, um, the other side of northern anyway um so um to cycle into the back gate of my home farm having connected it up from canberra having done 17 odd thousand kilometers at that stage and then connecting it up with eventually going back to canberra that was kind of quite a moment to sort of bring my lives together sort of thing yeah 
And then what about your trip across to Africa? Because I know you wrote, wrote a book about it because I know, I know because I gave that to my mum a couple of weeks ago. So walk us through that because you were the first person to cycle Namibia's entire coastline. That was the second thing. That was the second? Okay. That was where I did, that was last year. But in the uh, end of 2009-10, uh, I did the, the Breaking the Cycle in Africa exhibition, mm. which was from the most westly tip in Senegal to the most easterly tip in Somalia, Cape Harpoon, uh, in a continuous line. But there I took, so I was taking all those experiences um, from what I'd done in Australia and Russia, etc. And here I was looking at thinking, okay, how do we create a story with a lot of meaning here? And with that passion for education, I was looking at a map of Africa showing um, countries with most in need of improved education. You can see this band of countries basically running at the base of the Sahara through the Sahel, running west to east um, across Africa. And I thought, ah, oh, okay, that, that, that could be a really, that, let's explore that a bit more. And then I, I realized that the reasons why the education, there were so many issues with education was all totally related to poverty. And, and you couldn't really like just pull education out or just pull health or, mm. or, 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 or um, uh, drought or whatever. So, um, so that the purpose of that journey ended up being to explore the causes and effects of extreme poverty. And I knew from, from the past that just by cycling through, I wasn't, these, these are really complex um, issues. So I wasn't going to get in depth uh, knowledge uh, enough. So for the story, so I had uh, 10 different partners and I visited 15 different projects during that journey. So I was, actually timing each each part of that trip with actually then meeting different projects some of them for larger organizations and some for just grassroots organizations and covering by the end of it basically all all the key issues related to to poverty and so that was my my vision to to create this story and as no one had actually cycled especially to the most easterly tip before um, it makes it marketable as well as being mm -hmm. the world first. Um, but the, the really most important thing is, is the story. And, and um, so that was probably the most life-changing expedition that I did. It was 10 months, 22,000 kilometers. Um, uh, and, and just, you know, it's this most diverse continent on earth and you get such a bad rap and, and, and I'm, I guess a, a big part of my role is also to show the real Africa mm. and on a bike, you can actually, I can't just wind up the windows if there's someone asking for money or whatever it is. I, I actually have to deal with everything. Um, and uh, it, it was just an incredible, like there's just so much there and it's so rich and, and it's, it's just so much, you know, humanity. Um, yes, there are obviously, some problems, but you know, people just often put Africa into some sort of, I don't know, too hard basket. It's, mm -hmm. it's not, it's, it's by 2050, Africa is going to be smashing it, I think. Um, and I can't say uh, now I'm putting Africa into one basket. I mean, there are so many countries like, I don't know, like Rwanda, like if you want to do business in Africa, you'd probably want to do it with Rwanda now. They've turned everything um, amazingly around. Um, I don't know, you know, it's, it's quite a testament to 
the leadership and, and you know, um, oh, the, you know, it, there are, as I keep saying, there were so many different um, projects that I, I visited that were just, you know, and, and since then when I've connected some, some haven't moved, you know, some have changed, some have gone forward, some haven't. Um, but I think in general, um, communications is something that's really uh, changed because before communications was virtually impossible and now, you know, with, with mobile phones, etc., they all just live off them and they can communicate and they can do their business. You know, they can look at the stock markets, whatever it is, they can, they can suddenly they can connect. And so that's helping them leapfrog um, sort of that, that issue with, with the utilities. Um, yeah, so Africa, yeah. Uh, so out of that, I wrote a book and produced a film. Uh, that was the first journey I did supported um, because I wanted to film it. Um, and I knew that I couldn't film those things on my, there's just no chance past experiences to, to get anything of any quality. Um, so it was a massive learning experience in many ways. Um, and it's taken me a long time to, to move on, you know, to move on from, well, I haven't really moved on. It's part of who I am. All of these are a part of who I am. Um, but four years it took for the film and the book. Um, and that was all happening as I started the Antarctic idea. Now, how much preparation, be it physically and mentally, goes into your training and your research for these trips? Yeah, I think that, that um, so much goes into um, creating the vision, something that I can put my energy into, something that I feel very comfortable with. It's got to tick a lot of boxes first, and then a lot of research um, masses of research to make sure that that I'm looking to explore the right right things that are going to create a, a, a story and um, because w when it comes down to when things get really tough say in Africa you know a quarter of the way through pushing at the base of the Sahara into massive headwinds sand everything you know I've had three gastros I'm, I've got a chest infection I'm not feeling great I've got 17,000 kilometers to go you know if, if I didn't have the vision right, if I didn't have uh, all the backing, the kids following me on, with the education program, if I didn't, if I hadn't done all that preparation, then I wouldn't have the same resilience as, mm. as I do. So it, I think if you, I don't move on any expedition until I'm really sure of it and really sure of, of my motivation to do it. Um, and, and so when it does get really tough, I, I, I think that, you know, I have a lot of mental skills now, which COVID's easy for me, you know, it's like, but I have a lot of uh, mental skills um, to, to go forward. And that's, that's a part of, you know, that planning, planning, but adaptable, like you still have to be adaptable. You still have to be able to think on the spot. You still have to be able to um, mitigate the risks. I mean, to get right across Africa, and arrive at the very tip of Somalia through, you know, there's a conflict going on, there's a war, the war zones, the lot, and got there four days ahead of schedule after 10 months. So I had a lot of systems that really worked um, and I had the planning, The plan, I mean, I'm not like a stickler for saying, okay, I must do this distance this day, but you know, over, you know, if I had like one city to another city, for example, Okay, I know the distance. I know what the 
roughly what the obstacles are going to be. You know, I, I can cover 130 kilometers a day, whatever it is. So I, I, I have those works, so I hit those marks. And then on the bigger trips, if I am a bit slower somewhere, I can at, catch up somewhere else. Um, I also add extra diversions in there in my planning. So if I was really running behind, I can cut one or two out. But, but for me, the rules are that the line has to be continuous. I can't break the line. So even crossing war zones, crossing, sure, if I had to cross a river, that's a different thing. <laughs> but, uh, but um, you know, the way that the Somalis, the government fought for me to get through these no man's lands and, the, you know, they were so into it and it was, it was so wonderful and it motivates me that they're inspired by what I'm doing. So, so how, does, how does the process there begin with working with the governments, allowing you to get through some of these war zones like that's you're just talking like it oh yeah i mean it happened but it had to have been yeah. a fair bit of work going in the background but was there ever any like stress throughout it as well yes, <laughs> yes there's stress um uh so one of the systems that i had in africa that worked incredibly well was um uh i teamed up i, I pitched to australian resource companies with interests in africa and each of these resource companies, uh, I did a lot of work and presentations before I left. I had 11 different companies um, uh, that were supporting or at least would uh, loan the premises when I got to that place because they would always have their, their um, uh, bases in, in the cities, which are always horrible. African cities generally, most, place, most countries aren't great. Um, but they'd have their Mr. Fixit men who could make things happen. If there was likely a visa issue, they could smooth it over. So, so managed all of that. Um, they had their connections directly with the government because the governments they were working with, and that's mm -hmm. how. And then I, I also chose companies that were in places where I knew that there could be issues or that were in strategic parts of the journey. So the start, the finish, Republic of Congo, uh, they were covered, um, you know. The, the, you know, so so most of those places um, were covered, and it and enabled me to get actually just from their help, just with some of the logistics to help that you know everything to run smoothly, and just getting advice about you know going through areas like um, say the northeast corner of Nigeria, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, you know, you know they have the intelligence on the ground or going up, you know, I got up to Timbuktu, but, but we had Tuareg contacts from, that wasn't mining, but we had different contacts from there who, who were able to advise us um, and what to do. And, and, and so, so it's the big systems and then it's also local knowledge. Um, and, and once you get things rolling, um, that can work quite well and it's sticking to the plan. <laughs> so with all the expeditions you've, you've done, is there one moment or, you know, one story that stands out from the rest? Ooh, that's really hard um, <laughs> uh, because I always like to talk about the last expedition that I've done, because, but, um, you know, it's just say in Africa, that, that privilege of going across Somalia, of, the Somali plains and everything to the finish it was it was surreal. It was like cycling across another ball plane, but undercover with two bulletproof vehicles and uh, and a full military unit. There's a, a conflict that started three days before I came in because Al Shabab 
were getting too strong and the government was acting on that. The president of Puntland, which is like a state, it's like the state of Western Australia, um, you know, he, he, he was an Australian Somali and a couple of the others were Australian Somalis. So they treated us like family and um, they pulled out all stops <laughs> for us to get through. And, and they had the, the security worked out. There was even a NATO warship off, off the coast there that if something went wrong, he said could have contacted, we had two gov three government ministers with us. They could have contacted the warship and the helicopter would have come in and picked myself, my cameraman and my sister who was with us for that last little bit of the journey. I mean, those two traveled in the bulletproof vehicle. Wow. Um, you know, it's like, this is, <laughs> this is like, you can't imagine this, like, th this mm -hmm. is incredible. Like, if you were writing a movie, um, this is better. <laughs> <laughs> well, is that, is that probably why you had a camera crew, just so people could believe what you were doing? Because what you're saying, like, people could even write that in a movie and be like, yeah, no, that didn't happen. Well, we've got, well, the, my, the driver that I had for the whole journey never promised to come into Somalia. So, so he stopped in Ethiopia. Um, and, then, and then we had, through the Somali connections, in Melbourne, and that's through a resource company mm -hmm. initially. Um, they, I kept in touch with um, this one particular fellow the whole time. And when I was three months away from crossing the border, he started mobilising uh, his his uh, colleague in Somaliland, which is essentially British Somalia, runs differently, like a different country to Puntland. So he was he was on board, and then and then the government. So he used to mobilise the government. And it kind of was like rolling out the red carpet through, like, it was just incredible to um, even just meet these people. Like, imagine what I would look like from then this white woman on a bicycle, um, arriving, stopping for a tea break somewhere, <laughs> you know. Um, and they're intrigued, and it was kind of good for them to see me, and that I, I wasn't going to harm them. I was like, we were friends, and we were just the same. Um, the reactions of of the women especially, they were, they were, they were, they loved, they were just all over it. They, they were so intrigued and, and I looked different. I wasn't wearing, I was wearing, my knees were covered, but that's it. Um, and, and, but they understand that. I mean, they're very open. So it was kind of, um, it was just brilliant. That's, um, yeah. that's fantastic. Now, one thing you've touched on before, which we'll go into now, is around education, because it's something you're really passionate about, especially through the Breaking the Cycle, the education program, which is in collaboration with Breaking the Cycle Project. Now, what motivated you and how do you improve the understanding about poverty and inequalities while supporting the environment? Well, I guess what I have to do is with each ex expedition, I have to look at, um, I don't do all of those things all at once. Mm. Um, I guess, you know, I've had, I've dabbled in creating education programs and, and like with the African, the main African expedition, um, I had the Victorian Education Department created a, um, a program that sat on top of it and ran it. Um, but sort of in 2018, I was thinking, okay, I really need to make something sustainable. So I still hadn't got to Antarctica. I'd done um, three training sessions at that point in the Arctic. And so I created Breaking the Cycle Education and planned to do a preparatory expedition on each continent that was also going to be creating content for the program. And so gradually since 2018, that's been building and it, it's, it's just quite difficult to 
um, you know, I have a few schools that, that really follow it. Um, and then what I'm really, really hoping to do with the next few things that I'm doing is just really grow that brand now. I've got some good partners. I've got a, a way of creating really interactive uh, content. Um, I, I'm an honorary advisor for the Duke of Ed, Edinburgh's International mm -hmm. Award. Um, uh, and, and now they've created some new curriculum, which is going to be on my platform. Uh, so that's, we're just putting that together. Um, and that's like a, a virtual bronze adventurous journey. So um, because of COVID, some people can't get outside. So, so let's create this content mm -hmm. for them. Um, uh, so, so the curriculum's awesome and, and we're just translating it onto my site. So that's Duke of Ed are gonna come more and more and more into, into what I'm doing. Um, and that's global, that's not just Australia. Um, this, this organization is, that I'm working with, Beluga, is, is global. So I have, it, it's kind of like the Netflix of education where um, I've got my own channel. It's just, it's only just starting. I haven't really launched it yet, but I've got my own channel and where I can do live shows, I can show my films, all with resources around it. Some of it will be free, some of it will be in premium, which means it's very cheap. It's like for homeschooling, I think it's $6 US for, for a month or something like that. So it's, it's, it's not much, um, but, but we think that's, that's the way forwards and to help, because the hardest thing for me is I've got to keep trying to find funds for everything and I don't earn very much. So I have to, the bottom line is to do the expeditions. I have to find funds for each one. Um, you know, I've raised something like two and a, about a quarter of a million dollars in the last couple of years to do those six expeditions, create films, a couple of films, like, like it's crazy. So I'm, I'm having to find stuff and reinvent the wheel. If I can earn a little bit while creating this, then, then, then I can actually make, spend more of my time doing the, the things that, that you see, not the things that you don't see. Um, uh, so, um, so yeah, so with, with the education, I also present at schools uh, I have, and virtually as well. Um, and, and really what I want eventually is, is, is when I'm cycling with Antarctica, now we can actually uh, stream live back, it's possible. In the last year, that's become possible. And to be able to use this Beluga platform to be able to stream live uh, back and get kid, the students to be participating in, in, in the courses and creating their own activities, um, which are also environmental as well. I haven't been into all of that. Mm. Um, but it's, it's a huge platform and I can only see it growing with each thing that I do, not just Antarctica. Um, uh, so, so yeah, that's kind of it. I mean, um, for example, last year I made the first, you touched on this, but I made the first ever cycle journey down Namibia's entire coastline. It's a sand cycling expedition. So I started on, on the Angolan border, right at, at the mouth of the Kinene River, basically on the beach all, all the way. So it's uh, just over 1600 kilometers through the Namib desert, the highest dunes, some of the highest dunes in the world. Um, and it's just this, you know, it's called the skeleton coast because you know, the shipwrecks, whale boats, there's whale bones everywhere at times. Um, it's, you think the Fremantle doctor is strong? I think this beats it. Um, a really, like it's the same idea where you have desert and, and, and the same land breeze is coming up from the uh, Southern Ocean. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but they are absolutely relentless. Um, so, and I knew this, and I chose to go into the wind because I'm practicing for Antarctica. <laughs> I'm going to be doing that. So it's training the mindset, what I need to do. Like anyone who's cycled into the wind, you know what it's like. It feels like you're getting nowhere. So if I'm doing that and I'm going five kilometers an hour, I've got to mm. practice not my positive mindset. In, and honestly, that Namibian expedition was great for that. Um, uh, so, so we just made a film about that as well. And that film is going to be, is called Diamonds in the Sand. Um, and that I've got an international distributor and um, a UK, so we've made a film, but um, a UK producer is now make, making it into a, a four part series, which is really exciting. That's going to be, um, you know, sold all over the world. So, um, yeah, it's a different level and that should be building all towards the content and my, so you've heard of me a little more, more by the time I start Antarctica, but, but we can really d deliver great stories. That's what it's about. Awesome. awesome. Now, one thing about you is you're passionate about education, which started, I guess we could say at UWA, you grew up on a weed and sheep farm near Northern in WA, about 130 Ks. East, northeast of Perth, as I said, you studied education at UWA. Looking back, what type of undergrad student was Dr. Kate Lehman? <laughs> I wasn't a doctor. <laughs> um, um, I think that when I first went to UWA, I always wanted to go to UWA, but I'd been you know, straight through my, my primary then secondary education without a break. And I sort of fell into fit doing phys ed because... I was very good at sport and, and education was important to me. So, so I kind of fell into that, but I ticked all the boxes. I made sure I passed everything fairly comfortably. I was at St. Columba College, which is no longer St. Columba College. So I, as, a, as a student, I, I probably, as I said, I, I ticked all the boxes. I got really involved in student life and especially socializing as well as playing all the sports and representing the college. Uh, playing hockey for UWA. Um, I was also playing state squash at the time. Um, uh, so I was very busy, as I still am, I guess. Mm. Um, uh, but, you know, I enjoyed that time. I used to love even just the campus. I used to love um, just getting down to the, to the back near Steve's there, where the uh, human movement department is, I guess. There's a lot more there now. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yes, so... Um, so yeah, I guess my, while I studied phys ed, I guess my friends that I still keep in touch with the most are my hockey friends. So they're still my best friend, like that, that that's an incredible mm -hmm. family. Um, so, so yeah, you, the time that spent at UWA was, 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 was great. It was part, but I did feel that I, when I actually left UWA and I went, and I worked as a teacher for a year, I felt like I need to, needed sort of, some more life skills. I just felt that the kids were teaching me more than I knew myself. <laughs> I to get out and explore and, and experience the world, which is kind of what I did. So I didn't race back to teaching after that, but I like to use those skills in, in education and other ways. Is that why you became a, an adventurer? I just fell into becoming adventurous. Just it's following what's, what's natural. And of course, most people, you know, you're expected to, grow up, tick the boxes, get your degree. But it's, it's actually the extra, and, and still, I'm not saying don't do that, but it's the extra things that seem to define what I am. 
Um, and I think that should be probably true for everyone. Like, so you need that base, but I think, I think um, I didn't suddenly become an adventurer. I didn't have that kind of confidence. It's only, um, I was doing those things naturally as my way of seeing Europe at the time. And then it was Robert, Robert Swan who sort of taught me that there was much more to this and, and I hadn't considered it as a career. And it's never really made me money career, but it's kind of what I live like, like mm. I live for it. So it's, it's money's not, you know, if you're money orientated, don't do what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way, that's for sure. Now in 2016, you were awarded uh, an on-doc of education for services to education and community. So you're finally a doctor. Yes. Uh, what was that moment like for you? Oh, well, initially when I received the letter, I, was, I read it about 20 times. I, I, that was like totally out of the blue. I, and I phoned my parents and they, they couldn't believe it. It was, it was so cool. I think I was shaking when I read the letter. Um, and then of course I had to give the graduation address. So I put so much preparation into that, but it, I know it came out all right. So, um, and it was just, a, yeah, it was just a massive honor. And oh, you should have seen the, the smile on my parents' face with that. It was, it was un, you know, they were just so proud. And, and yeah, it was just an, an amazing, you know, to, to stand up there in Winthrop Hall, speak to a thousand um, uh, under, or, uh, graduands and, and, their, and their families. You know, it was, it was awesome. It was one of the most powerful moments I've had, I guess. Before I let you go, we've touched on this already, but you know, you've written two books and co-produced two feature films about your previous expeditions, but are we ever going to see a filmed expedition of Western Australia? It's funny you, you should ask that. So um, I've got these plans right now. Sure, Antarctica is still there. It's not going away. Um, I've, you know, COVID's stopping me from traveling outside of my country early next year. I certainly won't be doing that. So I'm, bringing forwards an expedition that I've had in the back of my mind. Um, and I guess it all stems from the fact that now with these all wheel drive fat bikes that I've got, it, they can go anywhere. And so with that sort of, I'm starting to bend ideas of what's really possible on a bike. So not just Antarctica, but I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at cycling, actually I'm calling it breaking the cycle West coast. So cycling the whole coastline of WA, but basically on, on the beach, on, on, right on the edge, if, if, if it's cliff land or whatever, then there's near, so if there's tracks or whatever it is just nearby, but I'm trying to stay off the tarmac. And, and it's about, um, roughly speaking, if I go from state border, like Eucla around to Kalanara, it's about 7,000 kilometers. Um, it, it depends on timing. That's about four months. I could make it three months and do a shorter version, but it's very exciting because I, on a fat bike like that, you can actually, like I'd be seeing WA and experiencing Western Australia, my home state, which I'm missing a lot at the moment, but in a, from a totally different context, like I've cycled the road, like I've cycled around WA in my strain journey, but mostly that was on the tarmac apart from the stock route. Um, and so this time it would be, it would be a whole different view, taking it from a whole different viewpoint. Um, and I think that's going to make a great story because we've got so many, um, so many incredible features and the world doesn't really know. So the idea of putting those, putting some of these incredible uh, features that we have around our coastline, whether it's, you know, telegraph 
um, stations in Euclid and Israelite Bay right around to you know, all, everything from Margaret River or, or the various um, national parks and reserves. Um, you know, it's going to have a biodiversity theme, and uh, um, which I'm putting together. Um, yeah, it, it's watch this space. I think I think the story. I've, I've actually got um, I've got a, a the same filmmaker that's come with me on the Skeleton Coast can come, and the assistant for that film can come. So I've got the team. Um, I've now got an international distributor and filmmaker that's doing the Skeleton Coast expedition. They're all over this, they can see. So, so we can produce a series to the highest level um, to, and sell it around the world. So I hope, um, so in the next few weeks, uh, I, you know, um, the proposals will be ready. I've just got to write the story a little bit more, but the way we can sell WA and, and also, um, uh, you know, I'll be talking with schools here and there and getting, uh, activities with the Duke of Ed and, and scouting and um, and with my program. So um, lots of reasons for doing it. Mm. Um, and I'm excited because I've actually, I kind of have cycled around WA on the, on the tarmac and I know what's there and I, I missed so much. So this way, you know, there's incredible indigenous history, there's incredible, um, as his, you know, my, my, even my, the colonial history, I come from a very old the WA family and they've touched everything from they founded Esperance right up to Kalamburu in, in, in the, um, the most northerly um, town in, in, in WA. There's a Mount Leeming up there because it's my, uh, my great grandfather who was a surveyor. That's why you have a suburb in Perth called Leeming. Um, and he also surveyed right up as far as Kalamburu. And so, uh, you know, I've got connections in the Pilbara the Kimberley, you know, all over. So I, I just think this will be an incredible way to connect and shine a light on WA at the same time, connect all these stories up as I do with other stories. But yeah. on a fat bike, it's even more grounded. So. Yeah, be exciting. I, hope, I do hope that project comes up. Now, Kat, that's all the time we've got. I don't think an hour is ever enough to, to talk about, talk with you and get all, all your stories out there. But if people want to learn more about what you're up to or even want to engage and contact you in regards to supporting your expeditions, where's the best place to visit? Yeah, just go to my website and, and there's two, two URLs, but um, they go to the same place. So just go kateleeming.com and you can actually have a look at the education stuff there as well with the Beluga channel. Um, although it's only, only educators can actually log into it because it's mm -hmm. protected. Um, uh, you can see all of my expeditions. You can get a taste of the teaser videos there. Um, watch out this space for Diamonds in the Sand. Um, there's a feature film which COVID stopped. I was going to do an Australian tour um, and a New Zealand tour. So we'll, we're making a new path for the feature film, which is 80 minutes. And uh, the series, though, we I think we're going to be able to sell all around the world, um, especially, you know, we'll get it in front of 500 million people and in fact that's what we can do with the um the west australian like now i have this these connections and these people are primed to do this and that they know they've discovered me as such um they're really keen to, to to make this next one happen and antarctica of course so perfect awesome oh thank you so much kate thanks very much josh that's um that was a good chat
Thank you.